Did you ever hear that story about the woman who scratched her itchy scalp so badly throughout the night that her fingernails dug through to her brain? This is 100% true. You can look it up. I certainly have been. And it's just one of the very tasty things that Dr. Carl brings up in this episode. We'll also talk about why animals have different fur patterns and we'll get to the bottom of it. Why exactly is it that we can't eat poo? (laughs) All of this plus a story about Dr. Carl's bruised bum coming up in this episode of Science. I'm Linda Mariano. Let's start. We're kicking it off in Cairns with Amelia. Good morning, Dr. Amelia. What's your question? Hi, Linda. Hi, Dr. Carl. Uh, My question today is why do different animals have different colours and patterns on their skin and fur? Like zebras, black and white with stripes and giraffes, orange and brown. Yeah, uh, I finally got a bit of an answer to that uh, reading the latest stuff about zebras just recently. Now, the background uh, principle to remember is that evolution is not perfect, just good enough. Uh, So let's just talk talk about the zebras. And we've been wondering about why they have stripes for such a long time. And the latest research, and there may be more that will give us a different opinion, is that it confuses insects that can carry diseases as they dive towards the zebra. And they show this by getting horses and giving them zebra coats to wear, you know, like cute little fashion accessories. And when they were wearing the zebra coats, the insects got confused and otherwise they didn't. And then I thought, okay, but why only the zebra animal? And then I went looking deeply and it turns out that the zebra is not just the zebra singular. There's about three or four major species and they've got chromosomes varying from 30. No, 24 to 36, they're they're, they're completely different. They look the same. Nature, via evolution, has arrived at the same solution for the problem of confusing incoming insects with diseases, Mm. but with very different animals. And all they've got in common is that they've got four legs and a head at one end and a tail at the other end, different sizes, and they've got these stripy patterns. And they look the same as you think, oh, it's a zebra, but it's not. So why have we got all these different colours? I reckon it's what evolution thought was good enough at the time. So, for example, with you and me, what happened was that we split off from the chimpanzees seven million years ago. Chimpanzees are white under their fur. We began to lose our fur about two to three million years ago and it gave us a bunch of advantages. One advantage was that we could run down an animal like a deer and sure, they can beat us in a sprint. We just follow them all day because we can sweat and we didn't have the fur. We wouldn't overheat. And at the end of the day, you'd come across the deer and it's just standing there waiting for us to kill it and eat it. And I'm sorry, that's the way life is uh, with animals you know, in the old days. Hopefully we're better than that nowadays. And so another advantage of not having fur was that we could then have uh, put that protein into our brain, which was an accidental side effect of being a better hunting animal. And to help deal with the fact that we had this light-coloured skin about 1.2 million years ago, we evolved black skin. So all the humans had a black skin because we were near the equator. And then as we moved away from the equator, we turned down the volume knob on the skin until when you get to the Inuit, Eskimo-type Scandinavian people, you got incredibly pale skin. So the answer to that is that uh, I'm not an expert in this field, but I'm saying evolutionary biology uh, and what's good enough to survive in the environment that you have at the time. But essentially zebras are lucky because they were able to develop that whereas horses 
didn't. They missed didn't. out. They yeah. missed out. Yeah. And in fact, that could mean that um, humans could do that further down the line if we had enough time because in humans, a generation is 20 or 30 years. So you'd need thousands, hundreds of thousands of years for this to happen. Oh, thank you for your call, thank Dr. You Dr. Amelia. Dr. Cal from Canberra, what's your science question this morning? Morning, doctors. Uh, I want to know why they recommend two litres of water is enough uh, to drink a day, whereas I sometimes feel like I could definitely drink more. And what sort of diet do you have? A uh, fairly healthy diet, mixed uh, vegetarian and every now and then a bit of meat. Right, because normally most people get the majority of their water in the vegetables that they eat. And so if you're a heavy meat eater, uh, I'd be curious. So you're saying you're getting lots of vegetables and you're still thirsty for water? Do you have yeah. lots of salt in your diet? Uh, probably not too much salt. Okay, don't know. Uh, it varies. Um, I don't believe the meme that says all of us are currently water-deprived and underhydrated. Um, the recommendation of the eight litres of water is correct insofar as that's eight litres of water total, including what comes in in your food. Sorry, eight litres of water per day. Per day. Including what comes in in your food, which is the majority of what you get. That's eight litres. Uh, was it eight or eight glasses? Oh, no, eight glasses. I was like, no, eight li- I was I'm like, wrong. Thank, thank heavens eight you li- keep eight glasses. Eight so about three three litres or so, Whoa. three litres, with the majority of that coming in through your food. Straight answer, don't know, but as far as I can tell, water is good for you. Drink as much as you can. Uh, but although water has an amazingly small therapeutic index, so people talk about fluoridated water being dangerous. It is in the sense that the um, to get a dangerous dose of fluoride, you need to have tens of thousands of times more more than you're getting, whereas with water, you only need four or five times. Ten litres of water a day will kill you. Three is good, ten will kill you. Wow. So you. I was bad saying eight litres. Thank you, Linda, eight. for keeping me straight. Thank you. <laughs> Just keep me on my toes. Thank you. Keep uh, me on my toes. Speaking of body functions, Tamara from the Central Coast, you've got one for Dr. Carl this morning. What is it, Dr. Tamara? Yes. Hi, doctors. Um, my question is why when you breathe out like um, it comes out cold and why when you breathe out it comes out warm? Right, so you're breathing the air out of the same mouth and you're blowing it onto the same palm of the hand, but if you make a very small hole, and breaking a small hole, blowing it across a microphone, that's cool, and I make a big hole with my mouth, wide open, and it's hot. That's the question, Dr. Tamara? Yes, yep, that answers it. Yeah, you have uh, discovered, you have rediscovered the principle of how refrigerators work. This is called the Joule-Kelvin effect or the Thomson-Joule effect and a whole bunch of other names. And um, the air is slightly compressed in your mouth, more compressed than it wants to be. It wants to push apart. And so as soon as it gets a chance, it does push apart, but it's been stuck together by sort of electrostatic forces. And so it has to, to get the energy to go apart, it has to cool down. It has to get the energy from somewhere. It gets the energy from the environment. So when the air expands, it cools down because the molecules are getting further apart. They don't want to go further apart, but they have to go further apart to fill up the space. They have to get the energy to do that from somewhere. They get the energy from themselves, and so they cool themselves down. This is the principle of the refrigerator. There's some good YouTube videos on it. It's a little bit hard to understand at first. Give it a go and after the third or fourth going, you'll get it. So with the Derek Mueller videos on the black hole, uh, I had to watch them three times to understand it. Mm. So watch it a couple of times and you'll get it. Wow. I'm sorry I can't give you a better answer than that. You need the video. I'm sorry. <laughs> we need the visual aids. Uh, I'm sorry. Angela from Wagga, what is your science question? 
Uh, yeah, good morning, doctors. Um, I want to know why, um, assuming that all the food that we eat that goes into our body um, is, you know, safe, okay, why is it not okay to not necessarily eat but be contaminated by poo? Why does it make us sick? Yeah, very good question. Um I was attracted to that by a story I heard on a weekend about a rather remarkable person, a plumber, who um, rather than pay another plumber to come in and clean up his septic unit because it had a little block in the back, you know, he was living on a bit of acreage, you know, back, so the faeces went into the unit, um, put a sock in his mouth and then dived into the pool of sewerage uh, and then cleared the, bru- the the blockage up and then spent the next three months in hospital with septicemia. Hold on. The sock in his mouth there was, was... Some sort of filter? Maybe he didn't... Maybe the real problem was his sock. He, he had really <laughs> dirty feet. I don't yeah. know. But he had a sock in his mouth <laughs> oh, as a filter and then dived into the swimming pool full of sewerage and then ended up spending the next three oh, months in hospital with septicemia. Oh okay, so we're fairly sure that the stuff that comes out is not good for you. Not all of your waste products are bad for you. I think if you lick somebody's tears, that's supposed to turn you into a unicorn. That is not scientific, but I've heard that. <laughs> Uh, um, the stuff that comes out of your nose, I won't hear anything spoken against that. Uh, urine def- is not that bad. It's not that good. I think about 100 million people a day around the world drink their own urine. I don't think it's particularly good for you or particularly bad. Thought to have a bit of melatonin, help you with early morning arising, all that sort of stuff. But feces are definitely, definitely bad to have contaminated. I'm just trying to think why. Because... You've got clean food coming into your mouth and then the bacteria go to town on it and do stuff into it, to it in your large intestine and maybe it's there that they make chemicals that are bad or maybe it's the bacteria that are in your gut are okay in the bottom end of your gut but not the top end of your gut. I don't actually have a good answer for that. And if somebody could give me a good answer as to why you can't eat your feces. It's definitely bad to have your feces, right? But what is the bad thing? Is it the bacteria that are in your lower intestine are bad if they're in your upper intestine? Or do they make chemicals that do bad things to you? I don't know which one it is. Give us a good reason to yeah. not eat our poo. Excellent. <laughs> that, that, was, that was very deep. Look, thank you, Doctor. Is that... Is that Dr. Angela, was it? Dr. Angela, thank you, thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're working on it, Angela. That's a deep question. Um, <laughs> you know I love a poo question. <laughs> Blake from Newcastle texted in as well saying, hey, guys, why do I do nervous poos before any sporting events? I think that's part of the sympathetic nervous system to get you ready for a threat. And so in this case, the threat is that you have got to perform after weeks or years or months of training against a whole lot of other people. And so part of the sympathetic nervous system response is that your pupils dilate, the blood supply to the muscles is increased, the blood supply to the skin is decreased so you don't bleed, uh, and also you feel colder on your skin. And in some cases... And always the blood supply to your gut is reduced and in some cases you want to urinate and defecate as part of your normal sympathetic nervous system response. So you're lighter, you run faster and you don't taste so good to the creature that's trying to eat you as well. So I think it's a soft part of that, the nervous pooing before a sports event. Mm. Guilty as charged. Oh. Dr Kelvin from Pottsville, what is your science question for Dr Carl this morning? Um, my question is, if the Thwaites glacier melt accelerates, could it create a localised thermocline and affect algal bloom on the sea ice? Oh, my God. 
Wow, you have covered so many different issues there. Okay, can you kind of repeat and unpack that for us? Okay, so let's just start off with Antarctica. And every year, the weight of water molecules that land on the entire Antarctic ice shelf and continent is uh, 2,000... Uh, billion tonnes. That's the weight that lands. And the whole thing flows towards the edge like a slow-motion river. The ice flows. And it used to be that 2,000 billion tonnes would drop off the edges, but now it's 2,250. So there's an extra 250 billion tonnes a year we're losing every year off Antarctica. Um, A few decades ago, it was only 50. So you've got these glaciers, and the glaciers are like a narrow mouth onto the ocean and a big V-shape behind them. They're like a plug in a bottle and they're grounded on the ice, although the the ice is ground on the rock below or the mud and um, if you get the combination which we have of rising ocean levels plus warm water getting them from underneath, then they begin to melt that bit where they're grounded on the ocean floor. It's called the grounding line. And then uh, they can sort of slip off in bigger hunks into the ocean. And we saw this first happening in the 80s when big, enormous icebergs started breaking off, which we'd never seen before. So getting back, Kelvin, so a, a thermocline is a part of the ocean where a layer changes temperature really quickly. So you've got the top layer, which is fairly calm, and then you've got the deep layer, which is... um, Oh, the top layer is turbulent, the deep layer is calm, and pretty well the same temperature, just gradually dropping down to four degrees at the bottom. And then in between you've got a thermocline. So you want to try that in there with an algal bloom, Kelvin? Yeah, well, the algal bloom is on the... In the winter sea ice, and oh. that's, what, that's what the krill feed on. Oh, I, I had no idea. So tell me about the algal bloom and the krill. So the krill are these little creatures. They're a few millimetres, centimetres across, uh, and they are the food for the uh, whales. And so you'll have a big whale like the fin whale, which is the second biggest whale. It weighs 70 tonnes. It'll dive through the water like a narrow little torpedo, then suddenly open its mouth at right angles, and it will take in more than its own weight of water. It weighs 60 tonnes, it'll take on 70 tonnes. Suddenly the whale weighs 130 tonnes. In that 70 tonnes of water is a lousy 11 kilograms of krill. And so it has to do this about 90 times (laughs) to get a meal of one tonne of krill per day to keep its 60-tonne body going. So you're saying that the – I didn't know about this. I've got to read up on this. So the Uh, algal bloom is is a food supply. It creates one of the biggest – biomass accelerations on the planet every year and the krill explode that much. Eating the algae, that's what the whales and everything else feeds on. And I was wondering, you know, with the with that warm water coming out from under the glaciers and just the generalised warming of the ocean breaking up the sea ice, it's going to have an accelerating effect on the, the loss of the algae. Ah, it's funny you should ask, but I happen to know some people at the Australian Antarctic Division who are krill experts. And if I say to them, the algal bloom, they'll say, yeah, yeah, what do you want to know about it? I've never heard of it before now, but now I suddenly realise I have got a lot of reading to do, Kelvin. I'll try and give you an answer by next week. Oh, okay. Thank you for your call, Dr. Kelvin. Yeah. Um, Getting deep on glacier melting. Uh, Kira, Dr. Kira, what is your science question this morning? Hi, Dr. Linda and Dr. Carl. Um, I was just wondering, do some objects like metal and glass attract phone reception better than like wood or even in some cases air? 
What, what do you mean by attract phone reception? You mean make the phone reception better or worse? Have you done an experiment, yeah, that's Kira? What I mean. Yeah, I have. Um, when my partner and I were camping out of reception, we put our phones against um, a glass window and our phones had like went from one bar to like three or two bars. Ah. Okay, in general... If you have any substance between you and the antenna, it will weaken the signal. And so a solid sheet of metal weakens it most and you work your way down to something like glass. What I'm thinking in this case is that you are, by holding it up against the glass, which is a hard surface, you are keeping it at coincidentally exactly the right orientation to maximise a really weak signal. So it was nothing to do with the fact that it was glass. It could have been cardboard or stiff paper. The point was that you were holding it at a certain angle and you had a very narrow sweet spot to be able to get your best possible signal. It used to be that you could get plug-in antennas into the mobile phones and some of them still have that. That's an option for some country areas. You can buy a special model of phone or a special handset that it plugs into and then there's a big fat antenna you can shove on the roof. Um, so that, that, that's my guess on that one, Kira. So it's rather the orientation rather than the material. But love that you've done yeah. an experiment. Oh, can we send her a fun pack? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oh. keep, give us your details, Dr. Kira. Hang on the line, okay? Yep. And I'll, oh, yeah, and thank I'll send you a you. present Thanks, as well. Doctors. Thank you You're for doing welcome. the experiment. Oh, that's so good. Grace from Newcastle, what is your science question? Hi. I was just wondering why when we're driving along, I see all these white lines in the sky and I think they're from jet planes, but I'm not too sure ah. why they come from just the jets or if they come from some or not others or... They, uh, they were first seen, uh, they, they're called cotton trails. So these are those long white streaks. Yeah, yeah. And they're called cotton trails. Um, they're not chemtrails, they don't exist. So I'll get to them in a minute. So cotton trails were first seen during the Second World War. We had lots of petrol-engined planes flying at very high altitudes to try and avoid being shot down. They were burning hydrocarbon fuel, petrol, jet fuel, whatever. It's got carbon and hydrogen in it. You burn the carbon, you get carbon dioxide. That's invisible. Forget it. You burn the hydrogen, you get H2O, which is water, at the high altitude. If the conditions are right, it can turn into ice. And that is the cotton trail. And depending on the conditions, it can either vanish within, you know, 20 plane lengths behind the plane or are going to hang in the sky for hours and just keep on spreading across the sky. So these are cotton trails. They are not chemtrails. Chemtrails are a conspiracy theory device which claims that the government or private enterprise wants to turn us all into sheeple. Have you heard that word sheeple? Yeah. Yeah. So sheep, a mixture of sheep and people who, because these chemicals have gone into our bodies, uh, now now totally compliant and will do whatever the government wants us to do. And in addition to that, these chemicals are also supposed to either cause global warming, stop global warming, or they're part of a secret um, global warming stopping experiment or part of a brainwashing experiment. Pick one of those. Wow. But Grace from Newey, they are cotton trails. Cotton trails. Hey, Dr. Brent from Coffs Harbour, what's your science question for Carl this morning? What's going on, guys? Thanks for having us on. Um... Yeah, you know how your skin gets itchy. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if your like your organs or anything inside your body actually gets itchy. Have you experienced this? No, 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 no. But I was just thinking about it before, and I was thinking, geez, that'd be absolutely horrible. 
Uh, well, there was a case of a woman who had a niche that was uh, sort of centred in her skull and she kept on scratching away and by the time she finished scratching, she had got through no, the no, brain. No. Yeah, yeah. She, she scratched through the scalp and through the bone with her fingernails. It took a month. She got through and then she stopped when she got to the brain. Because it what? was messy, yeah. What was it? We don't know. We don't understand itch. In general, the and inside... And what happened to her? Was she... Um, there was, it was a complicated case and it only dealt with that front end. I'm still working on my story on itch. I haven't finished the story, haven't, so I needed to do more on itch. So in general, you don't feel sensation from inside your body, only when you're on the outside working your way in, but you do have what's called referred pain. So if... Uh, I sort of scrape the inside of your left arm with a bit of sandpaper, you'll go, ouch, and a part of your brain will fire up. And by a coincidence, um, your heart, when it is being put through bad things like having a, a heart attack, will send a signal to the same part of your brain. It's never done anything for the first 30, 40, 50, 60 years of your life. And then suddenly one day it sends a signal to your brain you think, how weird, I'm feeling a pain in my left arm and you're actually feeling a heart attack. Or suppose you have some sort of hepatitis and you get an abscess on the liver and then the abscess starts um, irritating the bottom of the diaphragm. So we're talking about the diaphragm under the lungs on the right-hand side and you will then feel, wait for it, um, right shoulder tip pain. So for some reason the nerve that supplies that part of the diaphragm also supplies the tip of your shoulder and suddenly you'll feel this pain on your shoulder. So you, you can feel pain from the inside of your body but normally it never is activated except in extreme cases like a heart attack or an abscess infection sort of thing and in that case it normally maps to some part on the outside of your body and that's how you have that sensation and I don't fully understand what's happening with a woman who scraped through her skull. That is going to scar me, Carl, scar and I'm sure that far. there's a lot of people Googling it. I'm, okay. I know that I'm going to do that later. Ah, uh, okay. Well, uh, we'll forget about the sock in the mouth and the sewage pool then. We've, we've pushed that Your image away. today are too much. I don't know. I'm sorry. We love them. Uh, we're getting rotten. Okay. Uh, Nicola from Harvey Bay in Queensland. What is your science question, Dr. Nicola? Hello. How are you? Very Hi. good, Dr. Nicola. Hey, doctors is why do bruises change colour as they heal? Ah, a chance for me to tell another gross story. No! So I have a series of... Okay, so what happened was that uh, my mother-in-law, God bless her, made me out of some wool I brought back from the Himalayas, some yak wool socks. Incredibly warm, incredibly slippery. I slipped down the stairs. Oh. Going bounce, bounce, bounce on my buttocks. No, no, no injury except to my pride. And a bruise is where you get an injury, a blunt injury, and that bursts open the blood vessels, and the blood vessels leak, and the hemoglobin comes out. And I have, and I've never put it anywhere except on a secret file. I have a series of photographs day by day showing my buttocks changing colour from brown and going all the way through to green, and then into a, a faint yellow. And then, so it's the heme, it's the colour of the hemoglobin as it breaks down, and the hemoglobin is a precious molecule, and the macrophages go in there to try to get some of it and recycle it and bring it back into the mothership so you can use it again. It takes a lot to make a hemoglobin molecule. It's got four clover leaves with a bit of an iron atom in the middle, and the iron atom can have up to four oxygen atoms stuck on it. And to make those clover leaves is a lot of metabolic work, so your body tries to recycle them, and you go through these colour changes. So it's the colour changes due to the breakdown of the hemoglobin. Is that okay, Nicola? Perfect. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Where are the pictures? 
you'll never find them. Yeah, all right. Never. Josh from Newcastle, what's your question? Dr. Josh, welcome. Hey, how are we? Very good. Um, Love to talk to people from Newey. Uh, yeah, there's been a lot on today, apparently. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering, is there, you were talking about um, uh, like biology and evolutionary biology mm-hmm. a little bit, and I was wondering, is there an evolutionary pressure for music? Like, why have we developed it and why do we love it so much? Uh, there is an answer. It comes from evolutionary biology. Whether the answer is correct, we don't know. It involves people putting it out there and thinking about it because it's difficult to prove that you are correct. But the current popular theory is that the evolutionary pressure for bio, for music was that it then led to group bonding and then to language. Music is the first stage of language. That's the best we got for you. Does that kind of make you happy? Oh, and, and Jonica Newby, N-E-W-B-I-R, a, Newbie, N-E-W-B-Y, did a story about it on Catalyst. So you can go that through the ABC files and file that, find that. It's a nice long story and that'll give you a much better answer than the short one I just gave you. Uh, thank you Very for good. your you. question, Dr. Josh. Uh, Ash from Guy Mayer, you've got a science question. What is it, Dr. Ash? You're on Triple J. Uh, hey, doctors. I'm Ash. I've um, got a question about dark energy. Mm-hmm. I know that the uh, the theory that the universe is expanding, mm-hmm. how the Big Bang theory, it, it was a Big Bang, you know, has started expanding, uh, uh, and I was wondering, because apparently there has to be an energy that powers that expansion, and that's dark energy, but I want to know what you know about this stuff, so. Ah, okay, if you go to my ABC homepage, just look up Dr. Carl, ABC Dark Energy, and you'll find a two-part story on it that you can read. Wikipedia, that, that gives you enough of a soft entry to read the Wikipedia article, but I'll give you the summary right now. So the universe started, and then at about one, it was a big bang, and around one millionth of a 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 millionth, that's six millionths of a second, it went through a thing which is rather modestly called, a process modestly called inflation. It could be, should be called superinflation. And briefly, the universe expanded at many times, many thousands of times, faster than the speed of light. The fabric of the universe. Not the matter in it, just the fabric. And it tore everything apart. And then it slowed down. And if it had not gone through that inflation, the entire universe today would be smaller than the dot over the letter I on a printed page. The whole universe would be that size. But we had the inflation thing happen. And as a result of it expanding super fast and slowing down, the inflation kept on go the, the expansion continued. Now, the universe is 13.8 billion years old. And Professor Brian Schmidt and others, and they got a Nobel Prize for this, discovered that about 5 billion years ago, so out of a 13.8 billion year age, 5 billion years ago, the universe started to accelerate its expansion. And they've done different ways of measuring it and they all agree that definitely the universe began to expand faster. It accelerated about 5 billion years ago and it's doing it now. We don't know why and we don't know what's causing it. We, we can measure that it is doing it. We've, we're rock solid about that because we've done it different ways. But what's the power supply? 
We don't know. We can measure the size of the power supply, and if you turn it into mass, it works out to be 70% of the universe. So there's something big going on that we don't understand, and further down the line, this will be present in little toys that your children and grandchildren will play with, and in between it'll be a commercial product that adults will use. And what's the article that I should read? Uh, So go to uh, ABC, just type into Google, ABC... Dr. Carl, Dr. Carl, and Dark Matter, and that'll take you to an ABC homepage where I've written some stories on this, which are a brief intro to the Wikipedia article, which is the next stage. Awesome. Okay, Dr. Nicola from Brizzy, what's your science question for Carl? Was that me, Dr. Nicola? Yeah, yeah. Dr. Nicola, oh, you're a doctor. Hi. If you're on here, you're a doctor. Oh, That's okay. how it works. Hi, doctors. How are you guys? Good. That's good. Um, I was just wondering, so you know how you have like a regular light bulb and the electricity goes through the wire filament and it makes the glow? That's, I don't know how it works exactly, but I'm wondering how lights that change colour work, so ones that will, like Christmas lights, and they go from red to blue to green. Uh, the answer is massive computing power. And so I bought a little adapter the other day to turn my digital, my, my boring uh, headphones into being able to talk to my phone. And there's a little wire and buried in the wire where you can't even see it is a computer more powerful than the first computer I ever bought. So you've got those same sort of computers in your Christmas lights. Can you believe it? Super powerful computers, which they would have been supercomputers 20 years ago. In, your, in each LED light, there's actually three. There's only two wires going into it, you know, positive and negative, but there's three LEDs. There's a red and a green and a blue. And then following the instructions in the controller, the computer then sends a bunch of uh, signals down these two wires. And at the other end, another computer, about the size of a head of a pin, picks up these signals and says, okay, you want um, mostly red and a little bit of green, and then you want me to fade both out and to give you a blue. And so it switches between the red and the green and the blue lights following the computer instructions. Um, how come it's red, green and blue when red, yellow and blue are primary colours? Ah, Couldn't okay. you get all the colours out of the, yep. if you so, had a yellow in there? Okay, so now we're going into a different field. So oh, you've sorry. got, um, there's two sorts of, uh, what's the word, it'll come to me in just a minute, um, uh, overlapping light colours will come. So there's two sorts of colours. There's, there's colour from light which is uh, red, green and blue and they're your primary colours. But if you're going to make your colours by mixing dyes... You've got a different set, and they're the CMY, cyan, yellow, and magenta, and the word has come to me. The, um, the, look up the word gamut, G-A-M-U-T, and the, the gamut is the range of possible colours that you can generate, for example, using lights or using dyes, and they overlap a lot, but not 100%. So, for example, you can look at a brand-new fluoro tradie vest with your eyes, and you cannot print, you, you, you can't project that colour onto a TV. You can see it from a dye, but you cannot see it from lights. The gamuts do not overlap. Oh, thank you for your call, Dr Nicola. Jackson from Canberra, you've got a science question this morning. What is it? I do. Um, I'm wondering, when it comes to obesity, uh, we're told a lot to stay away from things like refined carbs and like sugar. But surely if you're in caloric deficiency, it doesn't matter what calories you ingest. As long as you're spending more calories than you ingest, you'll be in deficiency and you'll be losing weight. 
That is correct. You won't necessarily be healthy. The experiment has been done where people have lost weight exclusively on a diet of Big Macs. They just don't have many of them, but that's what they're eating. They're not particularly healthy. They're not getting all the protein they need and they're low on vegetables and they're getting too much salt, but you're dead right. So the uh, whole sugar carb thing is a simplistic thing, but certainly no point in having empty calories. See a dietitian. They're the people who have trained at university who can give you the proper answer. Fantastic. Dr. Leah, you've got a question hey for guys. Dr. Carl. Hi, what is it? Hi. Uh, I was wondering why dogs turn their heads when they hear high-pitched sounds or weird sounds. Ah, and it's also part of what they do when they look at a human being. And the best theory we've got is not particularly good, but it's related to the following. Okay, Linda, uh, I want you to put make a fist with your hand and put it over your nose. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, so it's hard to see what I'm looking like, so tilt your head to one side. Now you, now you can see me. See? So, oh, you've yeah, given me a snout. I've given you a snout. I've given you a snout. And so if the dog tilts its head, it can get a better view of ah. the environment around it. And then uh, that way respond better to any potential threats or friends. That's one theory. We haven't got anything better than that. I'm waiting for the better one to come down the line. It will come down the line. That's all we got at the moment, Dr. Leah. Great questions. We love dogs and we also love doctors. A true Dr. Adam from Brisbane. You are a doctor. And earlier this morning we had a question from Angela trying to get to the specifics of why you cannot eat poo. So, Dr. Adam, you've apparently got a nice little three-part answer. Hi, doctors. Thanks for the time. Look, really sure. The Number one, the bacterial load in feces is incredibly high. So you're putting that directly into your gut. Number two, the gastric mucosa and the small intestine sort of freely absorb the exotoxins and the endotoxins in the bacteria itself. So you're delivering them into your sort of your portal venous system, which isn't great. Number three, all of this causes a massive intra-abdominal uh, inflammatory response, which you you know, initially a gastroenteritis, but later can cause pretty profound sepsis. So please don't eat your poo. It's not good. Okay, but the, so the bacteria are okay in the lower part of your intestine, but should they do something uh, unimaginable like migrate to the upper intestine, they would then cause those problems? Yeah, yeah. this is typically called the faecal-oral route, and this is how a lot of things are transferred. Um, yeah, so the, the, the large intestine mucosa... If I remember correctly, it has some tight junctions and really only absorbs water. Uh, thus, the, the bacteria tend to stay in your in your gastric mucosa and your, your luminal body. So, yeah, look, I think... Um, so you, Short you know, answer is no okay. poo eating. Okay, okay. and Adam, so it's the endotoxins and the exotoxins that get absorbed in your small intestine but not your large intestine. That's what makes the bacteria really messy. And yeah, wh- yeah, why yeah, are they like making these endo and exotoxins? Uh, so it depends, gram, positive, gram, negative bacteria, like they, they have them in their cell walls, but then, you know, E. coli produces a quite a profound exotoxin to try and kill off and, and uh, I suppose, abate your own immune system and, you know, other bacteria around it. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty nasty stuff. Oh, we got an answer. I think it was Yay. for Amelia or Angela. Angela, Angela Thank you so Canberra. much, Dr. Adam. Thank look, you le- so much, Dr. Adam. And look, we're feeling generous. Leave your name at the desk and we'll send out a Triple J fun pack. Thank you uh, for getting in touch. Logan from San Remo in New South Wales. We'll squeeze in your one as well, which is also about food consumption. What is it, Dr. Logan? Hi, doctors. I was just wondering, why can you eat a raw egg but you can't eat raw chicken? Um, the raw egg has no bacteria in it. If you cook an egg and have it cooked soft-boiled and then you cook it all the way but not 
or you could only part of the way and it's still soft-boiled inside and then you shove it into cold water, it can absorb bacteria through the pores, 70,000 pores in the skin, and then that partially cooked egg is an ideal cultural medium for the bacteria that live in the water and they grow to very high numbers. So that's one circumstance under which you should not um, cool your eggs in water. Air-cooled is good, water-cooled is not. Uh, Chicken is another great growth medium, but it doesn't have a hard shell. So it gets contaminated easily by bacteria and so you can't eat... You you, you might get away with it. Uh, It might not have been contaminated with raw bacteria, with bad bacteria, but often it is and you've got to kill the bacteria by cooking it. Ah, okay. That takes us to the end of our science hangout for this week, Dr. Carl, and in fact for two weeks because next week is Anzac Day, so you won't be around. I'm actually going to be off from tomorrow as well Mm -hmm. for a full week. So it's been a pleasure. It's Dr. Carl chatting science with me. I'm Linda Mariano. And if you enjoy hanging out and you want to learn some more stuff, but perhaps in the world of music, then please check out the Inspired podcast that I also host. You were sleeping in my shirt, Arcadia. I get deep into the world of songwriting and creation with an artist. There's a recent app where I spoke to Brisbane guy, the Kite String Tangle, about the making of this breakthrough song for him. It's called Arcadia. The great thing about these chats is that the artists often bring in old voiced memos, diary entries, and in this case, a really old demo version of the song called Headlines. So it used to be called Headlines. and Really? And it was something about pushed in front of the headlights, at least you made the headlines, which uh, I thought was an interesting lyric, but it just didn't end up fitting the theme of where it ended up going. So. So that's got the headline lines in yeah. it. Yeah. How many choruses do you think that you played around with this? I mean, probably 10, if I had to guess. Like, I reckon I went through a lot. So that is the Inspired Podcast, if you're interested. I'm Linda and... Thank you for listening. I hope to catch you soon.